Beloved, please open your Bibles with me this morning to John 13. And we're going to take a break this week and, and next Sunday away from Romans and on Wednesday away from Isaiah in order to focus our minds and our hearts on the events of the Passion Week. And it's no secret that John is my favorite gospel. I love John. It's my favorite. I, it just is um, for so many reasons. But one of the reasons that I love it so much is because it gives us such great insight into the mind and the heart of our Savior. And we see that this morning. I want us to, to look this morning at what was an enacted parable. Jesus washing the feet of his disciples and thereby showing them the heart of his mission. So let's stand together and we'll read together verses 1 through 17 and then we'll pray and we'll dig into this text together this morning. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had finished, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, our great and 
holy and glorious and majestic Father and God and King. We worship you. We extol your name. We bless you and we praise you, Lord God, for all that you are. For all that you have done for wretched sinners like us. For all of your ways which are praiseworthy and good. Lord, we bless you. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of your Holy Son to us. And Jesus, your willingness, your willingness to leave the throne of glory and come into this sin-ridden world to seek and to save us. To seek and save sinners. To come and call sinners, not the self-righteous, to repentance. We bless you and we praise you for the great salvation that you have wrought for us. And as we come to this text today, I pray that you will help us to have, as your people, a fuller understanding of your mind and your heart toward the cross and toward us as you face the crucifixion, as you face the atoning sacrifice by which you would give life to dead men and women and children. I pray, Father, that as we look at this text, you would fill me with your Spirit, that you give me the unction of the Holy Spirit that I might preach Christ well so that your people here would see Him, would see the Lord Jesus high and lifted up and worthy of praise and love And Lord, so that those who are in this room this morning that are not yet in Christ by faith would find the love and the humility of Christ irresistible this morning. And I pray you be exalted and praised as we look at this holy word this morning, I pray. In Christ's name I ask. Amen. You know, beloved, this, this text has sort of a strange um, hold on my heart for one particular reason, peculiar reason, really. This is the first text that I ever preached from when I was in seminary. It, you know, we have preaching classes. When you're in seminary, you have preaching classes. You get up and you, you, preach from, uh, you preach from a text that's been assigned to you. And so I was assigned John 13, and I, you know, I was supposed to do a 20-minute sermon. And that's <laughs> Right, yeah. So anyways, but I, I was given John... 13 and um i got done you know and i got up actually where i sat i was a little bit of a suck up i I sat towards the back where our where our professor sat jimmy nelson and i got up and i went up and i preached and i came back and i sat right in front of him and this was the response to the sermon he leaned up and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said you missed the entire point and then he said when you're more impressed with jesus than you are with yourself then perhaps you'll be worth listening to yeah, there went the A, you know, it's like, well, okay. But that never, that thing, I, I can remember that like yesterday. It's never left me. Whenever we come to the Word, the goal is not to be impressed with ourselves, right? It's to be impressed with Jesus. It's to be gripped by the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And in this text this morning, John takes us into the upper room. He takes us away from all of the pressures and the needs of the ministry that Christ did for the multitudes, right? And he focuses us on the last week of Christ's life, the beginning of the last week of Christ's life on this earth, and specifically to his ministry to the disciples, to his own, to those whom he loved, these men who are representative of us. In fact, in these next several chapters, all the way up through John 17, and I would encourage you to spend time reading all of these chapters on your own this week. Jesus' focus is exclusively on his own. He dismisses Judas. He gets rid of the devil in the camp. And he spends his time speaking to his disciples, speaking intimate words to his true disciples, words of love, words of encouragement, words of promise and hope, praying for them, allowing them to overhear him, praying for them, interceding for them with the Father, interceding not only for them, but for us who would become disciples as a result of their ministry, right? Who like them have been given to Him, to Christ, by the Father. It's remarkable. These next several chapters are some of the greatest chapters of Scripture in the whole Bible. And in particular, John 17. But this morning I want us to look at the beginning of this upper room time that Christ had with His disciples. And the first thing I want us to really focus on is Christ's love specifically for His own. Look at this with me. Pick it up in verse 1. So now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Now again, as I mentioned before, throughout this text, throughout this text, we are given an insight into both the mind and the heart of our Savior toward His people. We don't just assume what Jesus is thinking. We don't just assume what Jesus is feeling. John tells us. He tells us exactly what is going through the heart and the mind of our Savior and beloved. I want you to see that for what a great gift it really is that we are given for just a moment insight into the inscrutable God, right? Jesus knew exactly. John emphasizes that Jesus knew exactly where he was in the timeline of his earthly ministry. He knew he was at the final hour, okay? He knew that he was at the climax of it all. His atoning and his wrath-bearing death were only hours away. Only hours away. He was about to depart out of this world and return to the Father. Interestingly enough, in the Greek, that phrase, return to the Father, is the Greek phrase, proston patera, that sounds a lot like what we read in John chapter 1 back at Christmas, proston theon, right? Face to face with God. He's going to return to his former state. 
before his incarnation. He's going to return to his face-to-face intimate communion and fellowship with the Father. But that road, beloved, that road back to intimate face-to-face communion with the Father, beloved, that was a road that was anything but easy. The Lord Jesus Christ was going to leave this upper room and he was going to make his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he was going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men by the treachery of one who professed to be one of his dearest friends. Judas, who would betray him with a kiss. He was going to be taken to the home of the deposed high priest, Annas. And then from there to stand before Caiaphas, the current high priest. And then to the judgment hall of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Then to Herod. Then back to Pilate. He'd be mocked. He'd be, he'd be violently scourged and beaten beyond recognition. He'd be crowned with a crown of thorns led along the Via Dolorosa to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and there he would be crucified. He would bear our sins. He would be forsaken by the Father. He would endure the fullness of God's wrath in order to accomplish the salvation of His people. He would die a sinner's death. He would rise victorious on the third day to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. But the pathway back to face-to-face communion with the Father would be anything but easy. It would get hard. Harder than it had ever been. In just a few short hours. And yet I want you to see something here. Although the cross was looming over the heart and the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ with all of its horrors. Here in the upper room, his focus is not on himself. Is it? His focus isn't on himself. It's on his disciples. Even the prospect of the most horrific suffering could not shake Christ from His love for His own. And that's really remarkable when you think about it, isn't it? How often do we give people a pass? Oh, you just don't understand what He's going through. You just don't understand what He's dealing with. You just don't understand what's, you know, weighing upon Him. We give Him a pass for acting like jerks, don't we? Don't we? Or we look for it ourselves. You just don't understand what I'm dealing with. I have a right to act like a jerk right now. I have a right to be self-absorbed and self-centered and self-focused. But we see none of that in Jesus, do we? Do we? We don't see. We don't see self-absorption or self-centeredness or self-focus. None of these. You know what we see? We see selfless love. Don't we? Can I tell you, Christ's love for his own stands in sharp contrast to what passes for love in our modern world. Doesn't it? Our, our, our love in this modern world, I'm not, I'm not banging on you in that necessarily. I'm just talking about love in general. Uh, you know, apply this to yourself as need be. But love in our world is awfully narcissistic, isn't it? It's transactional. You please me, I love you. You don't please me, I don't love you. Right? I love you because of what you do for me. In fact, I've noticed a trend. I mentioned this to you before, probably a year ago. I've noticed a trend with like the save the date stuff or whatever. When people are sending out for their weddings, if you did this, you can repent later. But, you know, I I noticed this trend and the trend is this. People write things like, you know, 
I love you because of how you make me feel. Or I love you because of who I am when I'm with you. I love you basically because of what you do for me. If you did that, if that was you, hopefully you love him a little more selflessly now in your marriage, right? Just saying. Christ's love's not like that at all. Because if it were, we wouldn't be loved. Right? Because if it were, we wouldn't be loved. How pleasing are we? Not much, if any, before the grace of God invades our lives. Christ's love for his own stands in sharp contrast to what passes for love in our world. Christ's love is altogether different. The essence of his love is self-sacrifice. The essence of his love is a love that seeks the good and the blessing of the one he loves. The essence of his love is a love that builds up others. A love that, instead of seeking to have its own needs met, seeks to meet the needs of another. Jesus loves his own like that. And that's a phrase, beloved, that I want us to focus on for just a moment. His own. Jesus loves his own. Well, who is the own that he's talking about here? Who are his own? Well, the answer is found all throughout John's gospel. They're, de- they're described in various ways. In fact, they are those whom God has given to him. John 17, right? Those are his own. They are those who have been drawn by God to come to Christ and believe in him and whom Christ will raise up on the last day. John 6. They are those who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of whom? God, right? John 1. There are those who are born again or born from above. John 3. There are those who come to Him and drink of the living water that He offers. John 7. There are those who receive and abide in His Word and so love Him. John 8. They're the sheep who hear His voice and who follow Him. And those for whom He lays down His life to give them eternal life who shall never perish and who can never be plucked out of His hand. John 10. They're those who love the Holy, those to whom He gives the Holy Spirit. They are those who believe in Him as the resurrection and the life. John 11. They are those whom He's chosen and who abide in Christ and so bear much fruit. John 15. Beloved, here's what we've got to see here. I want you to hear this and feel it. Although the scriptures teach that God loves the world, and He does, He's kind and compassionate and good to all creatures. He restrains his judgment. He restrains sin. He grants common mercy. He sustains his creation. He gives the seasons. He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He grants the blessing of medical and technological advancements that benefit all people. All of that's undeserved, right? He does love the world in that way. But I want you to hear me when I say this. Unapologetically, the Word of God teaches that Jesus has a special love for those that are His own. He does not love His people in the same way that He loves general humanity. There's a special love that Christ has for His own. A special love, a covenant love, an eternal and an electing love. And beloved, we can relate to that, can't we? Can't we? I can. 
As a Christian, God calls me to love all my sisters in Christ. But I have a special love for only one of them, my wife. I love kids. I love children in general. They're great. But I have a special love for my own children that exceeds them. Christ loves his own that are in the world. Notice here, John is making a specific distinction between those who are in the world and those who are Christ's own. Those who are his disciples. He loves his own. It's a, it's a truth that's emphasized throughout John's gospel that there's this particular people that's been set apart for God, by, by God for his son, and that these elect people are the objects of a special, distinguishing, saving love, right? Yes, God loves the world, but Christ's love for his church is of a different degree. It's of a different degree. And why is that so? It's because the Father gave his own, us to him. Christ loves his church as his own because we are his bride. Isn't that the heart of what Paul says over in Ephesians chapter 5 and starting in verse 25 when he says, Christ loved what? The church and gave himself up for who? Her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish beloved christ has a special love for his own and should that make you feel special you better believe it it should is it right to feel that way i don't know Is it right for your wife to feel like the special object of your love husband? What do you think? Jesus has eternally, infinitely, immutably, sacrificially, powerfully set his love and his heart upon his church, on his own. He loves us in a way. If you're a Christian, he loves us in a way. He does not love the world. J.C. Ryle said, The love of Christ to sinners is the very essence and the marrow of the gospel. That he should love us at all and care for our souls. That he should love us before we love him. That's the order, isn't it, beloved? Isn't it? That he should love us before we love him or even know anything about him. That he should love us so much as to come into the world to save us, take our nature on him, bear our sins, and die for us on the cross. All this is wonderful indeed. It's a kind of love to which there's nothing like it among men. The narrow selfishness of human nature cannot fully comprehend it. It is one of those things which even the angels of God desire to look into. It's a truth which Christian preachers and teachers should proclaim incessantly and never be weary of proclaiming Christ loves his own and he loves them to the end. What a great phrase that is, to the end. In Greek, it's the two words, aistelos. Aistelos. It's an important phrase. It's an expression that carries with it this meaning. The meaning of completely, or totally, or perfectly, or comprehensively, to the uttermost. That's the idea. 
In other words, Christ loves his own to the complete extent of his capacity to love his creatures. I want to say that again. Christ loves his own to the complete extent of his capacity to love. He loves us as fully and completely as any human being could ever be loved by God. He loves us unto his own death. But that expression, I tell us, also carries the idea of eternality. In other words, it speaks of a love that, that lasts forever. Listen, Christ, this is the wonderful thing about Christ's love. It's not fickle. It's not like human love. Listen to me. He doesn't stop loving his people because we fail or we fall. Aren't you happy about that? He doesn't stop loving his people when we stumble or even when we allow our hearts to be drawn away from him for a time. When like stupid sheep, we wander. He doesn't stop loving us. He doesn't withdraw his love because of our imperfections and failures. The one that knows everything there is to know loves even the people he knows so well. To the uttermost. That's amazing love. That is amazing love. What a comfort it is to know that, that our Lord's love is constant. It's unchanging. Knowing that he chose to love us and to keep on loving us purely out of his grace and not based on our performance. Praise God. Jesus loves him own, his own. He loves him to the uttermost degree. And to the very end. And what a comfort and a security that should give us. What a glorious love. There's no love like this. And the only place it's found is in Jesus. Charles Spurgeon wrote about it. He said it's a distinguishing mark of God's people that they know the love of Christ. That we know it. Experientially is the idea. Without exception, all those who have passed from death unto life, whatever they may not know, they have learned this. And without exception, all those who are not saved, whatever else they may know besides this, know nothing of this. For to know the love of Christ, to taste its sweetness, to realize it personally, experimentally, and vitally, is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that is the privilege of the child of God alone. Jesus' love for his own, beloved, it's a special love. It's a serving love. And that's the background to this enacted parable that follows. Jesus, because he loves, has loved his disciples, having loved them. He loved them to the end, having loved them from eternity. He now loves them all the way to the end of his earthly ministry. And he loves them by giving them a clear picture of what he will endure on the cross, why he's doing it, and the love and the humility from which it proceeds. He gives us understanding Christ's heart here and his mind gives us the proper perspective to understand everything that takes place here in the upper room. Not just here, but all the way through John 17. But particularly here. Look at the picture with me of this loving Savior who serves. Look at, look at what takes place next, right? It says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, just let me stop there for a second and say this. 
get the atmosphere that you know how one person can ruin the atmosphere. You ever been in one of those situations where one person is like, if you could eliminate them, everything would be great. But while they're there, everything kind of stinks, no matter how good it is. You know what I'm talking about? If you're thinking about somebody in particular, I hope it's not me. But anyway, here's Judas, right? Who could have brought everything down. And in fact, the atmosphere does change after Jesus releases them. There's no question. But, but here's the thing that John emphasizes all, at first. It's not like, look, Jesus is aware of what's going on. He knows what's going on. And, and he knows that Judas is set against him. And in his hardness of heart, Judas, right, had made himself the willing servant of darkness, right? And so he stands again as a picture of somebody that, that you know, not everybody who professes Christ really are his own, right? Right? That's borne out over time. And here, pretty evident, as we'll see, Judas is not, right? But with that all going on, John says this. Look at it. Jesus, here we are, we're getting a picture of his mind again. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, we need to understand this for the incredible scene that it is, okay? We really need to understand this text, okay? Here they are there at supper, okay? This is... This is the evening meal, okay? It, it's not the Lord's Supper. That's going to happen after Judas departs, but it's the meal that's right before it. And along the way to the upper room, to this place, the other gospel writers tell us that what was going on amongst the disciple band was this. They were arguing amongst one another over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. So their mindset when they're getting to the upper room is trying to establish their position over one. What's the pecking order in the disciple band? Band, right? I understand that completely, having had four sons. That goes on in a home, right? Goes on in a family. It's going on right here. And so when they get there, right? When they get to the upper room and they're getting ready to have this meal, as was the custom before you'd share a meal together, their feet needed to be washed. The foot washing was necessary because... You know, not only were the streets dusty and dirty, but they usually contained garbage and the waste from animals who traveled up and down the same streets that they traveled. So, feet need to be washed. But here's the thing. Washing somebody's feet was the task for the lowliest of servants. The guy that was on the very tail end, right? The bottom rung. It was for the lowliest of servants. In fact, Jewish slaves, ethnic Jews that were slaves, could not be required to perform this task by their master. Only Gentile slaves, since they were dogs anyway. So since this is a private dinner, one of the disciples was going to need to humbly wash the feet of everybody. But because they were continuing their ongoing debate over who was the greatest, nobody volunteered. None of the disciples were willing to humble themselves. 
And so, during the dinner, the idea here is Jesus gave them as much time as possible to see if one of them would wash somebody's feet. They sit down, they're beginning the meal, and that's when Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he come from God and was going back to God, condescended to act as the lowest of slaves and wash the disciples' feet. And we need to see the staggering nature of this. The place from which Jesus does this. There's a reason John, by the inspiration, the leading of the Holy Spirit, describes for us the mind of Jesus here. It's not that Jesus just all of a sudden forgot who he was. He knows exactly who he is. Now look at it. First, Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. What does that mean? It's a Greek word that means absolutely everything. The totality of everything. The whole of all things God gave into his son's hands. He had everything in his hands. He put everything in every, every, every single everything. That's what that means. This very situation, the whole of his mission, all authority in heaven and earth, in his hands. The authority, for instance, to lay down his life and take it back up again. John 10, 18. The authority to speak on the Father's behalf, John 12, verse 49. The authority to exercise judgment, John 5, verse 27. And especially in view here, the authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom the Father had given him in eternity, John 17, 2. He knew that all authority was in his hands. Moreover, Jesus knew that he'd come from God. Now, you might hear that and say, well, that seems like an obvious statement. No, duh. Right? Of course he knew. Yeah, he did. But I want you to think about this. The world refused to acknowledge that fact, didn't they? Didn't they? They refused to, to receive him. They refused to recognize him. They called him a blasphemer because he said, I am the son of God, John ten thirty six. They called him a glutton and a drunkard. They accused him of being in league with Beelzebul. They accused him of being a lawbreaker. They accused him of all kinds of stuff. Jesus was totally unperturbed. Didn't move him at all. Didn't make him question anything. He knew exactly who he is. He knew that, he knew that all the rejection of the world was just fooling rave, foolish ravings of arrogant and ignorant mankind under the sway of Satan. He knows who he is and he defies reinterpretation or redefinition or, you know. I mean, this is the ultimate sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Right? Say what you want. doesn't change who he is. Then last, he knew he was going back to the Father, right? He knew he had reached the climax of his mission to redeem his chosen people on the cross. He knew that his offering of himself as the perfect sinless sacrifice for sinners would be pleasing in the Father's sight. He knew that. He knew that the Father would not leave his body in the grave. He knew that the Father was well pleased with him and in him. He knew all those things. He knew that he would glorify the Father and that he was to receive the glory and honor of being the Savior of his people and that he would be restored to the place of glory that he had with his Father before he came into the world and that he would be declared Lord of all. He knew all those things. What's the point? Here's the point. Christ's identity as the Son of God did not lead him to command sinners to serve him. Instead, it freed him to serve sinners. You see that? I'm going to say it again because it's vitally important. Jesus, Jesus, listen. His identity as son of God did not lead him 
to command sinners to serve him. Instead, it freed him to serve sinners. Jesus did what he did fully conscious of who he is. That's John's point. As the eternal son of God, he, he had, you know, the right to demand that the disciples wash his feet. Didn't he? Didn't he? Couldn't he have stopped the meal and been like, hold on, time out. I'm your Lord and teacher, right? Right? And knowing all these things about himself. Couldn't he have said, one of you foolish men should come and wash my feet. Don't you know who I am? Right? There's none of that in Christ. There's none of that in him here. That's not to say that he will not command the praise of which he is worthy when he returns. But in this scene, there's none of that. He humbles himself. He washes their feet because he knows who he is. And because he's determined to love them by showing him, showing them his true glory. Revealed in humility. Christ knew exactly who he is. And in this humble act of washing the feet of his disciples, he's showing them exactly what he had come to do. He dramatizes for them the truth of his own ministry, the truth of his redemptive mercy, the truth of his own condescension, the truth of his humility, and the truth of his love. Doesn't he? I mean, follow this. First, Jesus rose from supper just as he had previously risen in a far greater way from the throne of glory. And then he laid aside his outer garments just as he had laid aside his rights to display his glory when he came into this world as a man and veiled his glory lest he incinerate us. And taking a towel, tied it around his waist, he humbled himself. He took the role of a slave and then he poured water into a basin just as in a few hours he was to pour out his own blood in death a blood that would be for the cleansing of the sin and the guilt of his people right then he began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them it pictures the very act of applying the cleansing of his own blood to human lives right And then if you skip to the end, in verse 12, you see the end of the parable, that when he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and he resumed his place, just as the writer of Hebrews records for us that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. In a picture, in a moment, he demonstrates the purpose of his ministry. It's a picture of his whole life, from birth to death, to resurrection, to consummation. Really, what it is, it's a dramatization of what Paul would later write, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, isn't it? You know those words, but I'm going to read them to you anyway, because I want you to hear them again in context with this incredible parable, this enacted parable of Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not... Count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Right? 
this parable, this washing of their feet is a picture of what he's going to do for them on the cross and what he will continue to do for them as his people. Watch how it works itself out. Notice what happens when Jesus gets to Peter. It's always Peter, isn't it? Doesn't it seem like it's always Peter? He gets to Peter. Presumably, it's kind of hard to believe, but presumably as Jesus has been working his way around the table and washing feet, the disciples have been shocked into silence. The cat's got their tongue, right? They're not, they're not saying anything. Nobody says a word. All that changes when Jesus gets to Peter. He came to Simon Peter, it says, verse 6, and who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. It's remarkable, isn't it, that in one man can reside both humility and pride in such degree as in Peter? Isn't it? I mean, well, maybe not remarkable. Maybe you know somebody just like him. Maybe you are just like him. But Jesus comes to Peter. Peter tells him in very definite terms, he will never allow Jesus to wash his feet. Literally what he says is here is, you shall not wash my feet unto eternity. In other words, something like, I mean, we would say something like, never in a million years is that happening. Right? Well, what's going on with Peter? Well, we don't know with certainty, but we can kind of, you know, put the dots together. He's embarrassed. He's troubled. He's probably embarrassed that here's Jesus washing everybody's feet. Why didn't he do it? Right? Probably going through his mind is the fact that, that he's troubled. He's ashamed now that Christ would be washing his feet. He's offended that the one whom he calls master would humble himself in such a way, so publicly. Peter's offended that that Jesus would do that, and he, he protests Christ doing such a thing because, you know, truth is, Peter's undeserving, isn't he? Isn't he? Of course he is. And you know what? That's just the point. That's just the point. What Jesus does for his disciples, what he does for us, Beloved, he doesn't do it because we deserve it. He does it out of his love and his grace. You with me? Jesus, in washing the disciples' feet that night, was giving them a preview of the humiliation of the cross. Peter resists having Jesus wash his feet on the premise that he's unworthy, beloved, and he is. But if he rejects Christ's ministry here, if he rejects Christ's ministry here, then he must also reject having his sins washed away by the humiliating death of Jesus Christ on the cross because he is equally unworthy of that as well. You with me? If Peter could not accept this humiliation of the Lord in order for him to wash Peter's feet physically, how could Peter ever accept that total humiliation of the cross that was necessary for Jesus to wash Peter's soul spiritually? Peter doesn't get it in the moment. Afterward, he will. After the cross, we'll get it. Not right now. But Jesus doesn't let this slide. In fact, he says something that sends shockwaves through Peter. Jesus answered him, end of verse 8. 
If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. That's an absolute statement, beloved. I want you to see that. That's an absolute statement. If Christ doesn't wash you, no part. No no share with him. In fact, that phrase share with is a phrase that means no part in. In other words, what Christ is saying to Peter is this. He's saying, if I do not wash you, you've got no part in my salvation. You have no communion with me. You have no shared life with me. You've got no fellowship with me. If I don't wash you, you're not mine. You're not mine. Of course it's not physical because he's already washed physically the feet of Judas. It's spiritual. He's talking about spiritual things here. If I do not wash you, you've got no part in me. He's got to wash us. He's got to purify us. He's got to cleanse us of our sin or we have no part in Christ. And he's the one who does it. He's the one who washes us. He's the one who brings us into communion and fellowship with him. He brings us into his life. We don't bring ourselves into his He brings us into his life. It's his loving and gracious work, not ours. It's his irresistible call that overwhelms our sinful nature and makes our hard hearts, our dead hearts, to be born anew then from above. And that causes us to do the only thing a soul that is now alive can do. The soul that's now alive to God. And that is to believe in Christ. He does that. It's His loving work. That's how needy we are. Look, surely that's a blow to our pride. Isn't it? Isn't it? It's a blow to our pride. But we got to put away all pride and receive what only Christ can do. In His great and enduring love for His people, Christ must suffer a far greater humiliation than simply washing feet. He's got to suffer the ultimate humiliation of the cross. He who knew no sin must serve us by becoming sin for us so that we might be washed and be made clean and become the righteousness of God in Him, right? Well, that's the love of Christ. Such is the love of Christ that the Son of God, God Himself, would love us so that He would, that he would suffer the ultimate humiliation and degradation of the cross to wash our souls. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You got to love Peter. As soon as Peter hears that, right? Tune changes in an instant, doesn't it? He hears that. He's like, oh, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Wash all of me. Right? Try looking around for a basin somewhere you got to love Peter, man. Whatever Peter's faults, and there's a lot of them, right? Just like us. The thought of having no part in Jesus, whom he loved deeply, was just too much, man. That was too much for him. He gets the gravity of those words. Like, that snapped him out of his, you know, pride in, a minst- in, a, in, a, in an instant. You have no share with me. Oh, no, wait, hold on. I retract my last, Right? He can't fathom that thought. So in his typical pendulum-like manner, he now responds in the opposite extreme, right? And, And in Christ's response, 
he teaches us something vitally important about salvation. This is so, so important here. He said to him, Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, what's the point here? What is he getting at here? Well, again, it's the picture of Jewish dinner guests. They would bathe at home, and it was only because they walked through the dirty streets then that they needed to have their feet washed, right? And so Jesus is using that symbolism here to teach an important truth about salvation, okay? Here's what he's getting at, okay? The whole bath, a full bath, You know what that's symbolic of? That is symbolic of the total cleansing that occurs when a person believes and receives Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord through faith, right? In a a moment, you are washed clean. Now, in a sense, Peter is already clean. He's already trusted Christ, and he's already confessed his faith in him. You remember, right? When Jesus said, who do you say that I am? It was Jesus that said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God, right? And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but who? My Father who is in heaven. So in other words, Jesus looking forward to the work of the cross and affirming Peter's God-given faith in him says, Look, you and all the other disciples, except Judas... The word you there is plural. You and other, all the other disciples except you, you're already clean. You've already believed on me. You believed in me and in light of the cross to which I'm going, I'm saying to you by your faith, through your faith, you have received the cleansing, the full cleansing, the redemption that I'm going to purchase on that cross. You're already clean. At the moment of saving faith, A person is fully and completely cleansed by the blood of Jesus from defilement and sin. It's likened to a bath in which we're all washed completely from head to foot, right? It's what we've seen in Romans. That's what justification by faith is. It's a washing away of the guilt and the defilement, the evil and the sin of our entire lives, past, present, future, right? In fact, Peter gets it, obviously, because later on in one of his letters, he's going to extol the beauty of knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, right? So you don't need, you don't need Peter to be washed all over again. You don't need to be saved all over again. But here's what he's getting at. Though we are, beloved, positionally holy before God, when we receive Christ as Savior and Lord, and we, we, we trust in what He's done on the cross for our ransom and redemption, though we are positionally holy before God, we are not yet fully practically holy, are we? Are we? We are not, we do not fully reflect the holy character of Christ fully. Do we? Do we? When you find people like that that get saved yesterday and tomorrow, they're just like Jesus, run. Run. That's not how it works. There's an ongoing cleansing which, our, which, which the believer still needs, right? A daily washing to counteract the defiling effects of the world 
Our feet get dirty every day, don't they, beloved? Don't they? I mean, they, I mean, in a spiritual sense, our feet get dirty every single day, don't they? Sure. You know, we fall into sin. Sometimes your feet get dirty because you deliberately pursue sin, right? Oh, not me, preacher. I only ever fall into it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Come back to reality, right? We, we, we know that. We, we choose to do what we know God's word forbids us to do. We leave undone what we know we should do. It's then that we need to repent and confess, right, our sin, and be washed by Christ afresh and anew. Why? For the sake of our fellowship with Him, right? We don't need to be saved all over again, but we do need cleansing, don't we? In our daily living, we sin. In our sin, when we leave it unwashed by Christ, it causes our minds and our hearts to grow dull. And it causes our consciences to be dimmed. And it causes our spiritual affections to grow cold. We need to come to Christ. To have our minds renewed by the truth. And to confess our sins. And to be served by Jesus as He washes us by His Word. And cleanses the fleshliness from our hearts and from our minds. Daily He needs to. Jesus must serve us by His grace. Yes, we serve the Lord, but listen, Jesus doesn't stop serving his people. He must serve us by his grace. He must wash away sin from our lives. He must enable us more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. He must enable our fellowship with him. That's what 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 deals with. It's written to Christians, not the world, to Christians. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Stop lying to yourself. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Both those things are necessary. The act of total cleansing at the time of conversion and the process of continual cleansing. Without both of those, we have no part with Jesus. They're both part of the salvation that Christ provides for his people. And in fact, listen... Realizing that is one of the ongoing, one of, uh, is one of the central principles of, of Christianity. An, an ongoing, personal, humble dependence on Christ. Not just for salvation, but for sanctification. There's nothing greater in life than fellowship with Jesus. To seek Him, to worship Him, to live for Him, to know Him, to love Him and His glory. And when we falter... Here's the good news. Beloved, Christ is ever-present, towel in hand, to wash us clean and to condescend to our need and to serve us. That's how He who deserves all honor serves us who deserves no honor at all. It's how He demonstrates His love toward us who have nothing to commend His love at all. That's the glory of Christ. He shows to His beloved disciples, those who are His own, in an enacted parable, this is my glory. How then do we respond? Well, look what it says. We respond. We respond by serving each other as the Savior has served us. Look, starting in verse 12. When He had washed their feet and put on His outer garment, when He had washed their feet and put on His outer garments and resumed His place, He said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you. In the Greek, the idea here is, do you understand the significance of what I have just done, both for you and for me? Do you get what I just did? Are you comprehending this? 
And here's what we should see. It is in Christ loving us first and serving us first and continuing, Christian, to love us and continuing to serve us. It's that that must lead to us loving and serving Him through serving one another. That's the divine order. It's not you love God and you serve God and God will love and serve you back. That's not the divine order. The divine order is God loves you first. He continues loving you. He serves you and he continues serving you. So you love him and you serve him by loving and serving one another. And so loving and serving him. That's the divine order. In fact, look at how he continues. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. And if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also, that you should also do, that you also should do, just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, Jesus emphasizes what? He emphasizes his place as Lord and teacher, right? And in that exalted position, that did not and it will not keep him from humbling himself to serve us by his death on the cross and to cleanse us and keep on washing us every single day, right? The principle then is this. If we love him who loved us first, and who keeps on loving us. And if we are to serve him who served us first and who keeps on serving us, then we must do as he has done, right? Right? Isn't that what he's saying? Okay. So what's he getting at? We're supposed to follow his example. I've given you an example. All right. So what's he getting at here? Does that mean then that we must wash one another's feet? We need to start having foot washing services, right? Is that what that means? No, it's not. That's wooden literalism. That's not the point here any more than when Jesus says, I am the door. He's talking about a real door, physical door. That's not the point here. In fact, you know what that is? I'm just going to say this. I know there are some people that think that's what this is. What I'm going to tell you is that's reductionist and it misses the point. I can wash somebody's feet without really humbling myself. In fact, look at how humble I am. I'm washing their feet. That's not humility. What is that? Pride. I can hold my nose and wash somebody's feet without loving them. I'm going to scrub your feet and buddy, I'm going to scrub them good. Who's got the wire brush, right? It's reductionist. Christ has given us an example of how we're to live before his own. If we received his grace, in other words, if we received his grace, then we ought to act like him. It's a lesson that the disciples need to learn. And that lesson, we need to learn it too, is wrapped up, I think, in, in, in two words. In this case, in two words. Here they are. Humility and love. You want to know what the example of Christ is here? Humility and love. If the only begotten... Let's talk about humility. If the only begotten Son of God, the King of Kings, did not think him beneath himself to do the humblest work of a servant in washing their feet, but even more, to be humiliated on the cross for our sake then I'm going to tell you right now that there is nothing which we as his disciples should think ourselves too great or too good to do. 
Well, that's beneath me. Well, it wasn't beneath your Savior. There should be nothing that's beneath us. No sin, I think, is... I can't say that. If there are, there are few, I would say, sins that are so offensive to God and so deadly to the soul as pride. And God, He, He commends humility. Beloved, I want you to hear this, and I need to hear this. We all need to hear this. Self-conceited, self-satisfied, self-contented, self-serving, and self-wise Christians are a contradiction in terms. You can't be those things and be a Christian. That can't be indicative of your life, and you say, yeah, I've received the grace of God. You're lying to yourself. That's why Paul commands us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is right before you know the whole run on what Jesus did to save us, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count yourselves more, count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If Christ humbled himself, if he washed even the feet of Judas, can we not ourselves humble ourselves before fellow sinners? Can't we? Even ones you don't like? We must. Love, then, is the second lesson, isn't it? Our Lord would have us love others so much that we should delight to do anything that can promote their godliness and their growth in Christ. Anything that would bring them to Jesus. We must love one another as Christians so much that whatever we can, we would do to relieve the burden of sin or cover another's faults with love or comfort one another's sufferings or strengthen each other in grace. We ought to rejoice in doing justly and loving mercy even in the little things. We ought to count it a pleasure to lessen sorrow and multiply joy even when it costs us some self-sacrifice and some self-denial. If Jesus, who is God, could rescue sinners like us with a costly love, then, beloved, we ought to love in a costly manner as well. And our love must be characterized as His was by humility, tenderness, and sacrifice, right? That's, what it, that's the idea of washing one another's feet. It, listen, washing each other's feet is not just this physical thing. Washing each other's feet is a humble, as a humble and a loving servant is the ministry of forgiveness for goodness, for goodness sake. I mean, that's a perfect example. Jesus washed the disciples' feet, right? What was that? It was a picture of forgiveness and communion, wasn't it? Wasn't it? It's the picture of continual washing, the continual application of Christ's once-for-all forgiveness to our ongoing sins. Beloved, here's the point. We wash each other's feet as we obey the commands of Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13, to put on as God's chosen ones, His own, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness patience bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the lord has forgiven you so you also must what forgive washing each other's feet as a humble and a loving servant it's a ministry of cleansing right when we speak the Word of God in love with one another. We wash off the sin and the crud of this world. We renew each other's minds. We support and we strengthen one another. And when a brother or sister falls into sin, what does Paul say? He says, 
Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. In a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Let me tell you something. The only way you restore a sinning brother or sister is with the water of the Word. Water of the Word. Not your own wisdom. Not your own philosophy. Not your own opinion. Your opinion doesn't matter. It's the Word. Christ is our perfect example in this. It's all about love and humility. But for many of us, the problem lies in that we don't realize just how much Christ loves us. Look, there is no comfort in believing that God loves you in the way that He loves the rest of the world. Could you? My wife would not feel comfort in knowing, honey, I love you just like I love all the women in the world. No, I mean that. There's no comfort in that. The comfort is Christ loves you with a love that is unlike any other love in the universe. It's about humility. The reason we don't, under, the reason we don't love others like we should is because we don't realize how we've been loved. I really believe that. I think that's one of the real dangers. Like when you, when you try to convince yourself that Christ, that God, you know, when, and you hear guys say this, that, that the love that God has for the world is, is, is just, you know, what? No, there's a special covenant love that God has for his people, that Christ has for his people. And when you, if you don't realize that, then you are the loser. The reason we don't love and the reason we aren't as humble as we should be is because we really don't believe as deeply as we ought to the way in which Christ has loved us, the, the, the depth with which Christ has loved us. And more than that, we've never really thought as we ought to about His humility. But Jesus says very clearly here, look what He says at the very end of this. If you know these things, blessed are you Because you know them. Is that what he says? No. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you do them. It's not enough to hear and understand and approve of what Jesus commands. You've got to do it. You must receive his love and let him serve you and then go and do the same. I want to close this word, this, this, this sermon this morning with just some questions for reflection really quickly. The first thing I would ask you is this. In light of this amazing scene that John paints for us, I want to ask you this. Have you received Christ's love yourself personally? Have you? Have you received the blessing of His humble and His loving service? Have you heard the voice of Christ through the preaching of the Word of God beckon you to come to Him who loves you so that you might be washed of your sin and of your filth and of your degradation so He might continue washing you so you might know that He loves you with an everlasting, unchanging love? Have you come to Christ? Have you responded to His offer of salvation? Have you come to Him? Without pleading anything on your behalf. Have you come to him just confessing, Lord, I am a sinner. I am estranged from you. I am deserving of judgment. I am deserving of of your eternal justice, which is hell. But I know that you love sinners because your disciples were sinners. And I'm a sinner. And I am coming to you 
and praying that your life and your death might count for me. That your resurrection might count as my own. I'm coming today surrendering myself to you as Lord and as King. I am coming to you. Because in your love, I, in your love, I have heard your voice calling me and I, I can't resist. I can't resist. Have you? Receive Christ's love. Do you know what it is to be cleansed? Do you know what it is to receive his cleansing day by day? Do you know his love in your life? Do you know the reality of Christ's love in your life? Do you love him who loved you? Do you love Christ personally? I don't want you to hear me when I say that. Do you love Christ personally? I'm not asking if you love theology. I'm not asking if you love the Bible. I'm not asking if you love church. I'm not asking if you love your pastor. I'm not asking if you love your Sunday school teacher. I'm asking you, do you love Jesus? Do you love Christ? Do you love Him personally? Do you really love Him for who He is and what He's done? Do you have a share in Him? Life in Him, communion with Him, fellowship with Him. Is Christ real to you? Like Spurgeon said, again, it's the distinguishing mark of God's people that they know the love of Christ. Do you love him because you loved him because he loved you first? Sinclair Ferguson says this text ought to lead us to ask, is the Lord Jesus Christ central in my thinking and in my living? That's what it means to love somebody, right? Right? Is the Lord Jesus Christ central in my thinking and in my living? An honest answer, he says, would probably be yes, but not always. And never as much as he deserves to be. As Christians, we are no longer what we once were by nature, but we know we have not yet become what Christ has called us to be. We want to know and trust and love him better. Does that sound like you? Third, does Christ's love motivate you to humbly serve others in love as he loves and serves you? Does it move you to love other people, to sacrifice, to lay down your pride? The evidence that you've been washed by Christ and that you're being washed by Him daily is that you follow the example of your Savior and your Teacher and your Lord, right? Do you? Do you? Is your life increasingly marked by humility and love? By serving others, even those who cannot serve you back, especially those. Everything here is predicated on us knowing the love of Christ for His own beloved. Every bit of it. And so I'll close with these words from Charles Spurgeon, the end of the quote, actually, that I began earlier. This is the end of the quote that I gave to you earlier. This is what he says. He says, How important then, in light of this text, how important then become the questions, do I know the love of Christ? Have I felt it? Do I understand it? Is it shed abroad in my heart? Do I know that Jesus loves me? Is my heart quickened and animated and warmed and attracted toward Him through the great truth that it recognizes and rejoices in that Christ has really loved me and chosen me and set His heart upon me? While it is true that every child of God knows the love of Christ, it is equally true that all the children of God do not know this love to the same extent. There are in Christ's family babes, 
young men, strong men, and fathers. And as they grow and progress in all their matters, so they most certainly make advances here. Indeed, an increase of love, a more perfect apprehension of Christ's love, is one of the best and most infallible gauges whether, whereby we may test ourselves whether we are growing in grace or not. Let me read that to you again. An increase of love, a more perfect apprehension of Christ's love, is one of the best and most infallible gauges whereby we may test ourselves whether we are growing in grace or not. If we have grown in grace, it is absolutely certain that we shall have advanced in our knowledge and in our reciprocation of the love of Christ. Knowing his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. To the uttermost. And forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would move in our hearts now to respond to this word that we've heard. And to do so in a way that brings glory and honor to your holy name. I pray for every soul in this room, for the ones that know you and are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And Father, for those who have yet to come to Christ, I pray that they would be compelled by the love of Jesus, that they could not resist the love of Christ. That they would be drawn and come to faith in Him and realize and recognize that indeed they are Christ's own. They belong to Him. Father, I pray that we would respond as we ought to this day in Jesus' name. Amen.